Lord, I pray for these guys in here, and uh, Lord, I pray that uh, uh, as we journey through and look to, look at your word today, that that there would be things that you bring to our attention that would just jump off the screen uh, at us and just jump off the pages of Scripture to us. That that they would be embedded in our heart. That we would that we would oftentimes uh, think uh, as Paul thinks of uh, of really what it means to have true sons in the faith. And that's not biological sons. I'm talking about spiritual sons in the faith. But at the same time, as, um, as true uh, men of faith, uh, that we would uh, see the aspects of, uh, of what Paul shared to Timothy and, and, and about Timothy here in these next few verses, uh, that we would see, uh, that we would embed those things in our lives, that we would understand them as Paul and Timothy did. And then we would utilize them and exercise uh, our faith uh, in our journey each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you think about this, if, if you look, uh, you know, as we talk about service and being a Christian, uh, part of what we're to do uh, is to serve others. And certainly this is uh, Paul, uh, the apostle, talking to young Timothy, uh, who is the pastor at the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you look at uh, Timothy's background, uh, he was raised by basically a, a pagan father and a Jewish mother. Uh, and it was his mother that read him scriptures and taught him, and as well as his grandmother, taught him scriptures and taught him about the faith. Uh, but then Paul came through kind of on a preaching journey, on a missionary journey, and preaching in a place called Lystra. And uh, Timothy ultimately uh, found faith uh, through Paul's preaching. Uh, Paul, uh, interestingly enough, uh, in that city and in that place, after preaching the gospel, uh, those that were there uh, got stirred up against him. Uh, tried to stone him, ran him out of town. And uh, much to uh, uh, their surprise, Paul came back. And he said, man, just because I've gone through some trials and some difficulties, I'm still called to preach the gospel. And he comes back and leads uh, Timothy to faith. And then he invites Timothy to follow him. Uh, and Timothy does. And he goes on a long journey with him. And uh, then Paul, at a certain point uh, in Ephesus, looks at Timothy and says, I'm going to leave you here. I want you to pastor a church here. I want you to lead people. And, and at this time, uh, Timothy might be 20 years old, 21 years old, and he's leading uh, men and leaders in the church who are older than him. And so we see uh, uh, through the book of 1 Timothy uh, a number of neat things. Let me just share a little bit. If you look at the outline of... Um, uh, we're not going to go through it, but if you have an outline there, uh, chapter 1, um, Paul really uh, tells Timothy, he says, man, uh, be sound in your doctrine uh, as it relates to uh, the gospel message. In other words, don't veer off, don't venture off, uh, don't go down a rabbit trail theologically, but stay sound in your doctrine and sound in your teaching. Uh, don't get caught off in the things that don't matter. Don't get, uh, don't allow those, and there are those, and there are even those to this day. He says, don't allow people to come in uh, to the church teaching false doctrine. He says, you want to be aware. Uh, you want to be careful that you maintain sound doctrine. Then if you jump down to look in chapters 2s and 3s, uh, he really talks about in the church. He says, sound doctrine in the church. And, and chapter 2, he talks about how should we operate the church? How should we practice in the church? How should we operate in the church? Then if you look in chapter 3, he really talks about kind of the church organization. 
how's the church organized? And if you look in chapter 3, you might, uh, if you're a deacon here or if you've been in the ministry, you'll know that in chapter 3, he starts off talking to elders and leaders of the church, pastors in the church. Then he drops right into deacons. What are the qualifications for deacons? So he says, hey, if you're looking for leaders in your church, these are the qualifications that these guys meet need to meet. Now, it's interesting. If you look at all of those uh, qualifications, uh, they're really talking about uh, the here and now of those folks' lives. They're talking about, man, are they given to much wine right now? If, if so, you probably don't need to have them as a leader. That doesn't mean they couldn't have been an alcoholic in their past because that's part of the saving message of the gospel is the transforming power of the gospel uh, that I'm different now than I was back then. Now, you don't want to you don't want to just because someone has a conversion and had a difficult lifespan, he says you don't immediately uh, say, okay, now you're a deacon. Uh, you want to see their faith be tested a little bit. You want to see them walk the road a little bit. You want to make sure they're fully committed and fully in. And so that's what we see as we look in chapter uh, 2 and chapter 3. Then if you look down to uh, uh, chapter 4 through 6, uh, Paul challenges Timothy, now that you have your leadership in place in the church, he says, now you want to make sure they maintain sound doctrine, that the leadership is solid in their faith, and uh, you want to persevere in chapter 4. He says you want to persevere as pastors uh, and stay away from apostasy. Apostasy. You don't want to walk uh, away from the faith. Then you look in chapter 5 and 6. He says um, promote basically pastoral wisdom. He says, man, we want to lead our people uh, to just have wisdom as they journey through the world. And so that's kind of a lot of what Paul is uh, saying here. If you want to Take probably two verses. These are not two verses that we're looking at, but if you want a summary uh, of First uh, Timothy chapter uh, of the book of First Timothy, of uh, the book of First Timothy, you look in verse three and four. Here's what Paul says to Timothy: He says, "Remain on in Ephesus, in order that you may listen to this, instruct or literally command certain men not to teach strange strange doctrine, nor to pay attention of myths." Or endless genealogies. He's, that's basically the purpose statement of 1 Timothy. He says, I want you to stay there. And he says, I want you to encourage people not to adopt uh, false teaching. And I want you to get caught up into myths and legends and genealogies and all of this. Stay there and lead well. So uh, look, let's look back to these first two verses in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, uh, by the command of God our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's look at verse 1. Just break down verse 1. Let me give you three thoughts from verse 1 uh, that hopefully you can take and you can look at. Hopefully you already know these in your own life. But notice what he says. Number one, he uses the phrase, God our Savior. Uh, God our Savior. He says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior. If you look through uh, the New Testament, uh, Paul uses that phrase, God our Savior, six times. 
And you can see it in uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 of the same book, chapter 4, verse 10. You see it over in Titus, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, Titus 2, verse 10, and Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Um, the only other place that that idea of God our Savior is found in is in Jude 25, the 25th uh, verse in the book of Jude. Uh, but then notice he says Savior. It's not used. We, we say the word Savior a lot, but it's not really used in the New Testament that much. It's just used 24 times. Uh, in all of the New Testament. But when you put these two together, uh, Paul is saying, man, be reminded that God is ultimately the Savior of mankind. Uh, salvation is all from God. It's all about God. And Paul understood this well. If you go back to Acts chapter 9, how many of you remember that, that uh, he had the vision? Paul had a very dramatic vision in Acts chapter 9, and he saw a risen Savior. He had been persecuting the church. Uh, if you look uh, to Galatians chapter 1, if you want to flip over there, look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 to 17. Uh, Paul is reminding the Galatians uh, of uh, his conversion experience. He was reminding the Galatians there of who he was um, prior to salvation. Now, what do we know about Paul? He was a Pharisee, right? He was a legalist as to the law. He'll tell you in Philippians chapter 3, you're going to Galatians chapter 1, by the way. He'll tell you in Philippians chapter 3 that as to the law, I was blameless. I was perfect. And he says, I was a persecutor of the church. Now, he shares his testimony, interestingly, a little bit of a different way to the Galatian believers. He really emphasizes his legalism and his legalistic background. Why would he emphasize that? Because that's what the Galatians were struggling with, right? They were struggling with legalism. So look at how Paul shares his testimony, thinking about God our Savior in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 to 17. He says, For you heard, we're verse 13 of Galatians chapter 1. He says, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. He's sharing his testimony. He's making the connection point with the Galatian believers. He says, You know my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried even to destroy it. He says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen. What is he saying? He's saying, When it came to legalism, he goes, Dude, I was on the fast track. I was heading to the top. Man, when it as to the law, I was perfect. He says, Listen, it, uh, flood, flood warning, Allen, Texas. Uh, so he says, hey, listen, as to my other countrymen, he says, I was advancing faster than others. And so notice he says, uh, many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous, interestingly in the original language, more extremely jealous is the way uh, the NIV translates it. Man, he emphasizes in the Greek that I was passionate beyond all others' passion. He says, I was passionate about destroying this thing called the gospel. I was passionate about destroying this thing called the New Testament church. I was passionate about it. He says, being more extremely jealous uh, for my ancestral traditions. What was he passionate about? Maintaining tradition. We always want to be careful that our passions as we age don't become more towards maintaining a tradition. Instead, our passion is always about sharing the gospel in a contemporary environment. Let me say that again. We always want to make sure that as we age, uh, that as we grow up in the church, that our passions are not more about maintaining traditions that we grew up with. Instead, communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 
And, and, and it's not uncommon. That's not an uncommon thing for us as we grow in our faith to be more, become more and more passionate about keeping things the way they were, right? I mean, don't we sometimes long for that? I long for that with my kids. What happened to the day when you could just sit there and watch TV with your kids? Well, you know, when I grew up, that's all we had. My dad didn't even have money to pay for cable. So basically, it was, it was in, in Houston. It was three or four channels. And if you did the antenna just right, you could get some of the UHF channels so you could watch wrestling on Saturday night when they went to bed. But we want to make sure that as we journey in our Christian faith, that we don't become like that, that our passions are not surrounded and not focused on maintaining the traditions of the past, but always communicating the gospel to those who are coming in the doors of the church in the present. And so notice as he journeys on, he says, but when God, and here it is, remember he's talking about God our Savior. He says, but when God, who had set me apart, uh, even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He said, I did not immediately consult with the flesh and, with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, my salvation. Yes, in Acts chapter 9, I encountered a risen Savior. But part of the reason I did that is because God had chosen me. God had selected me. God had marked me out even from my mother's womb. We just left a, uh, left a series uh, from Psalm 139 where we really talked about God set us apart. He knit us together. In other words, wherever you are, whatever you've been through, regardless of who you encounter today, man, God has a purpose and a plan for their life. The question is, will they listen? And are you going to be with the ones that are going to share the gospel with those who need him so much? Or are we going to sit there and point fingers and, and wag our fingers and look down at people who are lost in their sin, uh, look down our noses at them? Or are we going to offer them the grace of God? Because the truth is God desires that all men would be saved. And we always got to maintain our passions there and not our passions toward traditions, not our passions toward maintaining something uh, that may not in, be effective anymore in today's modern environment. And so Paul says, listen, God set me apart. God chose me. He introduced me to his son. And I am called because he called me. And so Paul tells Timothy and reminds Timothy that God is ultimately our Savior. Yes, Jesus paid the price, but it was the love of God that sent his son, Jesus Christ, and we never want to forget about that. All right, here's a second thought. Uh, when God saves us, he saves us for a purpose. When God saves us, he saves us for a purpose, and that purpose is that we would be called to do something. Now, Paul says, if you look in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, one who is sent, one who is called, one who is supposed to uh, go and serve as a missionary. Now, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 to 17, somebody tell me what Paul's purpose was. I just read it to you. What was Paul's purpose? When God saved Paul, what was his purpose? There you go. God never saves anyone so that we can sit, soak, and sour. God doesn't save anybody without a purpose, all right? God didn't look down on John Mark or look down on uh, Dan or look down on Joe or uh, look down on uh, Rex or look down on someone else. God didn't look down on you and say, hey, I'm going to save you so you can just sit around and look pretty. 
Now, we all look pretty, guys. I want you to know. And you look really pretty sitting there. But God always saves with a purpose. Paul's specific purpose, we'll say it again, Tim. Okay. Did the church at that time need someone to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? Absolutely. Why? Somebody tell me why. Yeah, the church in Jerusalem was great, but it was primarily after Pentecost, it was primarily preaching to Jews, right? Now, you can look at some things, and we shared a couple of weeks ago uh, uh, in, in, in big church that, you know, there was that Ethiopian eunuch that, uh, uh, that was saved and went back and really began to preach the gospel, was baptized, preached the gospel back in Ethiopia, uh, and church tradition points a lot back to him and what he did. We need to understand that uh, Paul's specific purpose was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That wasn't Peter's specific purpose. That wasn't James's specific purpose. Those guys had great purposes. They, they developed order in the church. They developed, uh, developed organization in the church. They did a great job of having a founding church and, and uh, uh, doing uh, God's will there. But that also means for us that God has a specific purpose for you. Eric's talked about this, that God has gifted him in certain ways that you and I are not gifted, and he wants to use what God has given him to, to expand his ministry, to connect with people in law enforcement in different places and share the gospel, and then also uh, train our lay people. What? Because he understands God has a purpose for him. Some of you in here are great teachers. Some of you uh, are, are not called to teach at all. And that's where you want to be careful. And if you haven't done it, I want to encourage you uh, to go online. A couple of weeks ago, we gave you that spiritual gifts test. If you haven't gone online and taken that spiritual gifts test, go take it. It won't take you but maybe 10 minutes. Uh, it's just a bunch of, it's a couple of simple statements where you choose that doesn't, you know, one through five, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't describe me at all, or that's absolutely me, or somewhere in the middle. And after you take that test, uh, it'll tell you kind of your spiritual gifts, what it seems to be your spiritual gifts. Now, here's where we want to be careful. What was Timothy's ultimate call? Somebody tell me. Somebody knows it in here. Pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? Ultimately, after you follow him, after you pastor the church in Ephesus. Guess what? So we're looking at people had different calls, and everybody in this room has a different call. Some of you are called to teach. Some of you are called to lead. Some of you are called to serve. Some of you are called to do this. Some of you are called to do that. The one thing you're not called to do is to do nothing. All right? God never saves anyone so that they wouldn't do anything. Now, uh, that's where we always have to be reminded that God calls us and saves us with a purpose to all believers. If you just want to write this down, I'll read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. It says, As each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's to all of us. All right? What does it say? God has given each and every one of us gifts. What is our job as good stewards? To employ it, to utilize it, to use it, to serve other people. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. What gift has God given you that you are using to serve others in the church? What gift has God given you that you are using to serve others in the church. What is it? What's your gift? Now, 
as a good steward, we are supposed to use our gifts to serve people in the church. What, what kind of steward does that make us if we are not using our gifts to serve others in the church? If a good steward employs their gifts to serve others in the church, what about those who don't serve? You can answer that question. Bad steward. You're a bad steward of the gift that God has given you. Let me ask you a question. How many in here are bad stewards? You can be used, huh? <laughs> if you didn't hear him, Shane said, are we supposed to answer that one? Are you pleading the fifth back there? Yeah, yeah. We all would like to plead the fifth on that. But God doesn't save us without having a purpose for us. Now, the problem is, in our pride, we could sit here and go, well, you know what? I want this head position. This Sometimes God saves us just, just to serve in some place that will never get any recognition. But I know it needs to be done. And it's how God has put me together. And you're never going to be on the stage and get the accolades. You're never going to. Man, that's, that's okay. I'll, I'll just tell you the difference between me and my wife. And you all have heard me share. Uh, my wife has no desire to ever be on the stage. She doesn't. Once uh, the, uh, the, uh, the personnel team to, from time to time on our five-year anniversary, 10-year anniversary, 15-year anniversary, 20-year anniversary will, will bring us up and give us some anniversary gift. And I'll just tell you, my wife hates it. She doesn't hate the gift, just FYI, okay? I mean, I'll tell you, she loves the gift. Uh, but she that's not her. Guess what my wife loves doing? Right down this hall, she teaches a class filled with ladies, most of them who have been through divorces or their husbands don't come to church with them. That's what my wife loves to do. My wife loves to do what she's done all the is have a cup of coffee with someone that you'll never know, some wife that's struggling through. Yeah, Joe. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, I, 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 think it would, I think it would be everything. But uh, in the context, First Peter is saying serve one another. The serve one another is talking about other brothers and sisters in Christ, other, other believers. But, yeah, we constantly do things inside and outside the church. But the point is you're saved to serve. We're saved to serve. Uh, we're not saved to sit, soak, and sour. And let me tell you what, if all you do in church is sit, eventually you will soak and you will sour. It is a natural progression. The most I've, I've learned over the years, some of the most joyous people in the world are those that just serve all the time. Why? Because they know they're imperfect people serving other imperfect people, and they know that, that guess who the people that sour the most? The ones that sit around and say, you know what? I came on campus, and this wasn't right, and this wasn't right, and this wasn't right, and they're not doing this right, but they don't serve. Why? The only thing you can do, if you all you do is sit, you will soak. And all you can do is soak is you can sour. 
all right, you're going to sour. So God saves us. God saves us with a purpose. He gave, saves us our service. Now, that was to the church. That was to believers in general. Now, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, talks specifically to those in ministry, all right? So there are certain ones that God calls, and he places them in ministry. And he says to the elders, this is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Now I've gotten off y'all, all right? those that are not called into special service. Uh, now I'm on me. He says, to the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, you shall not muscle an ox while he is threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. So what is he saying? He says, to the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now notice this. The point in this that also leaves room for those who don't serve well. We should not always just follow someone because they say they've been called by God. You have to see a pattern in their life of leading and serving well. Does that make sense? I think a lot of people get in trouble. A lot of people get in trouble because they'll just go to a church. Remember, sound doctrine is part of the thing, and they'll hear someone teaching. They'll just follow them because they think. That's why I want to encourage you. Every time I'm opening God's Word, you need to be holding your Bible open. And if all of a sudden I have a spiritual stroke, do you know what I'm talking about? And I veer a hard left somewhere, and I stop leading well, and I stop preaching sound doctrine, you need to show up in my face. And you need to say, hey, you know, you said this, and I just want to make sure that you meant. Now, I will tell you, um, if you preach 52 times or 50 times on Sunday morning, and you preach something on Tuesday morning, uh, most, of the sun, most of the Tuesday mornings, and that's a lot of words. If you take at any point in my teaching, you could probably find six words strung together that might sound like heresy. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I mean, it might sound like that. But what is the whole context? What is the whole context? And that's why I want to encourage you that, that a person, a minister, is only worthy of double honor if they lead well. So don't think just because someone has the position of, of pastor or a position of elder, a position of minister, or a position of deacon, that they have the authority to lead you. You need to understand and you need to teach when your kids go off and our, our sons and daughters go off and they go to a different uh, church and stuff. Man, what are they looking for? They need to be looking for sound teaching, sound doctrine, make sure that they can determine and see it. No, is that someone telling me I'm done? So, uh, Eric, come on. All right, so let's jump on. Now, here's thought number three, just from verse one. Troubles are going to come. God saved you. God saved you with the purpose. God saved you with the purpose, but it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be easy. As you think in through, he says, Christ Jesus, look at the latter part of verse one, is our hope. Why do we need hope? Because we live in a world filled with despair, right? God saved us. God saved us for a purpose. But we live here. We've, we live in a society, a world in need of duct tape. You think about the grief this, those parents are struggling with in Parkland, Florida. You think about the grief uh, of uh, uh, the brotherhood of, uh, uh, of police officers in Richardson still dealing with loss. 
the widows that we've seen around uh, the nation who have lost their um, uh, their husbands in law enforcement. You think about uh, the the loss uh, just a couple of weeks ago of one of our 20-year-old girls that grew up here, the grief and the loss. Man, we need to understand that we live in a world filled with sin and hardship and difficulty. I'm saved. I'm saved with a purpose. But let me tell you what, we live in a world filled with trouble. And the only place and the only power to overcome this difficult, discouraging world is understanding the hope that we have in Jesus, right? That's why Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again someday to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What about a little further over in John chapter 16? Jesus said what? He said, peace I leave with you. What's the next phrase? Somebody knows it. My peace I give to you. Now keep going. There it is. Not as the world gives to you. Good, Joe. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let me tell you what. This world will not give you peace. Let me tell you what. If you didn't know this, at some point, the market is going to fall apart again. If I could tell you when, I would be writing a book and be a billionaire. But it's going to. And it's never going to happen at a convenient time. And it's not going to tell you, hey, by the way, get your money out of the market on X day before it falls apart. Guess what? Everybody in this room, someday your health is going to fall apart. Have you all noticed that? I'm not an actuary, but the statistical chance of you dying is pretty high. How many of you know that? I mean, it's like almost 100%. It's, there's been one that's come back for a long time. You say, well, Lazarus, yeah, but he died again. So here, let me just tell you, if your hope is built in this world, you're going to be let down. And Peter is telling, I mean, excuse me, Paul is telling Timothy, there are going to be days when Jesus is your only hope. When the world falls apart, your family falls apart, your job falls apart, your health falls apart, your finances fall apart, guess what? Jesus doesn't fall apart. And if we will continue to look for him for hope, he'll give us strength. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 29. He says, do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord our God is everlasting? He is the creator of the ends of the earth. God never grows tired or weary, and His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases power to the weak. I love this idea. His understanding no one can fathom. Anybody in here ever said, you know, God, why? I have. I want you to know I'm your pastor. I've been your pastor for a while now. There have been a lot of times I've said, nah, I don't get that one, God. There have actually been a couple of times, you're probably not this way, that I think if God had consulted me before, I could have given him a better path. Anybody ever felt that way? And you're like, you know, God, really, you could have gotten more glory had, right? 
and that kind of what we think. God, if you would have done this, guess what I would have done for you? And he probably looks at me and he goes, well, I saw what a great steward you were with what you had. Why would I have given you more? Right? And so notice, I love that. He says, man, we can't understand. There, that means we're gonna, there are going to be times that when we look to Jesus for our hope, that we're not going to understand what's going on. Because this world isn't going to make sense. But God's got it under control, guys. And if you continue, He gives strength to the weary and increases power to the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fail. But those, here's the word, who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. So guess what? If you are tired and you are weary and you are stumbling, if your hope is not in God, if your hope is not in Jesus, you will not get refreshed. I'm going to say that again. If when things fall apart in your world, if you're not looking to Christ for your hope, you will not be encouraged. That's why he says, he says, even youths grow tired and weary, young men stumble, but those who hope in the Lord, where's our hope? Hope in the Lord, they're the ones that will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and never faint. Man, that's where our hope is. Our hope needs to be always fixed on Jesus. All right, so from verse number one, God saves us. God saves us for a purpose. Our hope has to be in Jesus. Now let's look quickly to verse two. You ready? Jump down, look at verse two. It says, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father of our Christ and Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me give you five quick thoughts on what it means to be a true son in the faith. And if you're a son in the faith or if you have a son in the faith, not just a biological son, a son in the faith, let me give you five thoughts that you need to teach them. Thought number one is this. You need to teach them the true meaning of grace. You need to teach them the true meaning of grace. He said, Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace. Grace is the sweetest sound anybody can hear. It's the greatest thing we can ever hear and understand. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. If you want a true son in the faith, here's what you teach him. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest no one should boast. Why do men need to teach their true sons in the faith about grace? Because men, we are performance-driven. And the reality of it is, if we are real honest with ourselves, we all still have sin in our lives, struggles in our lives, things that we should be over, things we should be past, right? Anybody ever think that? Should not be beyond this. Should not be beyond this, but I still struggle. What does Paul talk about, man? If you talk about Paul, if I'm, if I'm here, Paul is way up here. But I love, and Paul uh, in Romans chapter 7 says, I have this battle, this war that's waging on. And if we let our sons uh, and our daughters and those people around us think, think that salvation comes by our works, they're going to miss out on the sweetest sound they could ever hear, which is grace. And so he says, grace, for it is by grace you have been saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest no one should boast. For we are God's handiwork, put us together, knitted us together, created us in our moms, in all of the things that we have, created in Christ Jesus to do what? There it is, to do good works. Grace, work. 
grace work. It's not work to get grace. It's I have grace. Now God has created me and handcrafted me to serve, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's thought number two. Here's thought number two. 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 You ready? I need to know grace. They need to know mercy. Somebody tell me the difference between grace and mercy. Give it a whirl. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to say grace is not getting what you deserve. That would be unsound doctrine. Right over there, just to get, no, I'm kidding. It, they're hard to define, but once you get it, grace and mercy. Somebody, that's all right. Grace and mercy. What's the difference between grace and mercy? Okay, grace is what you're given. Mercy is what you're asked for. We're journeying towards it. Somebody else. With a force and a punch, what was that? Okay, withholding of force and punishment. Okay, somebody else have another thought. Huh? Grace is undeserved. That's right. Huh? Grace is unmerited favor. So mercy. It's mercy is the one because we have a tendency to put them together. Huh? Forgetting what, okay, so you're, you're on. Here, here's the idea. Grace is not getting what you deserve. That is, that is God's grace. Mercy has more to do with kindness, that God's kindness. God has forgiven us of our sins, not because of how good we are, but because of how loving he is. That's grace. Now, God continues to show us kindness. That's mercy. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example of it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, verse 16, he says, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. How can we approach God's throne of grace with confidence? Because he's forgiven us, right? He's given us through faith. He's given us forgiveness of sins. Now, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what does that mean? Grace is what we're given. Mercy is what God gives us when we need it. It's kindness. It's the ongoing kindness. The, the theologians would put it this way, okay? And, it's, and by the way, they're very much intertwined. While grace points to God's forgiveness to the guilty, mercy, mercy points to His loving kindness to those who are helpless. Grace... This is the way the theologians would describe the difference. Grace points to God's forgiveness of those who are guilty. We are guilty. While mercy points to God's kindness to those who are helpless. God's acts of kindness. Does that make sense? Grace is what we refer to in a legal sense. It would be justification. God declares us as righteous. Kindness is God showing us favor. That's mercy. Does that make sense? It's more of an action that God is showing us. Now, they're hard to define, and don't worry about it. There are a lot of people that miss those, and a lot of times there are times I know when I preach, I use those words interchangeably because they're so close. One would have to do with forgiveness. One would have to do with kindness. When I think mercy, I think kindness. God shows me kindness. Now, obviously, God's showing me grace is kindness, right? But also kindness that I might help uh, find help in my time of need. In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, uh, Jesus said, Be merciful, for your Father in heaven is merciful. So God continues to show us kindness, and what should we then do? 
show kindness to those around us. Here's thought number three. So what are we looking at? Uh, True sons in the faith, we need to teach them about God's grace. We need to teach them about God's mercy. We need to teach them about peace. We need to teach them about peace. Man, true, we need to know peace of God. We talked a little bit about peace of God uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. How often are we supposed to rejoice? Always. Rejoice and let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Look at verse 6. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, there it is, that word peace, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when you teach them about grace, when you teach them about God's kindness, we also need to teach people about where they gain peace. They're just like hope. We're not going to gain peace by looking at this world. We're only going to gain peace, true peace in our lives by looking to God. So when things are tough and things are difficult, what do we do? We present our petitions to God. When I give it to God and I trust God, then we can think through the idea of, man, God's got it covered. Justin and I were just uh, in an exchange yesterday um, uh, about what we're going to do post-Easter. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to lead our people who want to go through, and I'm going to preach it, and they're going to lead it for life groups that want to, um, a, a series on prayer. Because when we think about spiritual disciplines, uh, I don't know about you, how many of you would say in here that you are a fantastic prayer? Room full of men. By the way, that wasn't a trick question. That's what I expected. And by the way, let me go ahead and drop my hand down. I am really good at a at some spiritual disciplines, reading God's Word, teaching, preaching, being prepared, you ask me to sit down and just pray? Man, you talk about spiritual and mental ADD. I'm just all over the place, right? So we're going to talk about the discipline of praying, becoming better prayers. But part of becoming better prayers is becoming better at listening for answers. Because sometimes we'll pray and we'll see God move. And I've, boy, don't we love that? Hey, God, fix this, and he does. I'm all in on those kind of prayers and fixes. Sometimes we pray and nothing. We love that, don't we? Well, what happens when I pray? What's the answer when I pray and I get nothing? It's not always no. Sometimes it's just not yet. God says, you be faithful to me. And the answer, sometimes the difficult thing is we can't determine always in the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God whether it's no or not yet. What are we supposed to be doing? Staying faithful just to place my petition before God. And how do we do that? Why do we do that? Because when I put it before God and say, God, you're bigger than this problem, it's kind of off my shoulders. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I can, but ultimately the results are up to you. That's what we can teach our true sons in the faith because that's going to bring peace in their life. That's going to bring a peace that transcends all understanding. Then here's thought number four. Uh, they need to know God as Father. True sons in the faith need to know God as Father. Look at it. He says, To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. 
Now, what did I tell you at the beginning about Timothy's father? He was a pagan. He was raised by a pagan. He didn't have, perhaps, a good father. But we need to understand and we need to teach everyone, regardless of your human father, you have a heavenly father that is perfect. We've got to teach true sons in the faith that ultimately we have to look, they have to look to their heavenly father. Now, it's tragic and it's sad that every young man that grows up and every young woman that grows up doesn't grow up with a great dad. But the truth is they don't. That's why we need to teach them who God truly is. We need to make sure that they don't think some God is some vengeful, hateful person. That's why we teach them about grace and kindness, grace and mercy. But our Heavenly Father is kind. You look back to Psalm 103, verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. Let me tell you what. A lot of people grew up with the kind of dad that was just bitter and angry all the time. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he was just walking on eggshells all the time. He says, God the Father's not that way. You screw up last Friday night. He's not still holding it over your head and angry and bitter at you this Thursday night. Man, you go to God, you confess it. Guess what? He's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sinfulness. We need to teach true sons in the faith that God's grace is perfect. He doesn't sit around seething in anger. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 11, uh, Psalm 103 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far uh, uh, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is was from the west, so far He has removed our transgression for us. I love this, verse 13. Here's the Father. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. So we have to teach our kids about grace. We have to teach them about mercy. We have to teach them about peace. We have to teach them that God is the ultimate Father. Why do I want to teach my kids that God is their ultimate Father? Huh? He's also my ultimate Father. That is true, absolutely true. But why do I want to teach my kids? I'm talking about me. This is me. I'm not talking about a general, this is me. Why do I want to teach my kids, that God is your ultimate father. Because I'm messed up. Let me tell you what, there have been some times that the pastor of your church for the last few years has walked through his house seething in anger for days. It's happened. It's not who I am generally. And I want you to know, in those couple of days, I didn't, I didn't come up there on the platform and mention that to y'all. That I hadn't been a great dad the last 48 hours. There have been times I haven't been a great husband. That's why it's real important that I teach my kids, guess what, guys? I'm just doing my best in this world to model what is the best and who is the best. He's your ultimate father. And when I screw up, and you can point it out, you can look and go, oh, Dad, you've got a long way to go. And then the final thought right there. You ready? Uh, here's thought number five, that, um, that they have to know Christ Jesus as Lord. Notice what it says. It says, To Timothy, my true son of faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, that Jesus is ultimately the one that controls their life.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these guys. Uh, Thank you for Paul's testimony and his witness for us and to us and through us. God, let us go out of here living the ideas we've seen today. God saved us, saved us for a purpose. Let us live out that purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.